have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner My guest today on Spirit in Action is Dan Neerhaugen. Dan has a deep concern that we build literacy in the United States, in our schools, but especially in our citizenry. Civic engagement and political literacy are built by reading, and reading books in particular. On his website, the48er.com, Dan highlights resources to strengthen the civic mind, books, and other publications which will help folk in the USA to competently uphold our democratic republic. Dan's efforts at supporting responsible citizenship have included teaching high school English for nearly a decade, editing a couple small-town newspapers, and creating syndicated history items for newspapers, items with substance and import to inform wiser decisions by We the People. Dan was raised Catholic, and his seeking has included exploration of evangelical Christianity, philosophy, Buddhism, and Unitarian Universalism. Good afternoon, Dan. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. Dan, you're an activist. Your mode of activism has been the web of recently. What's your objective for the world? Well, you mentioned the web, Mark. That, as you say, it's gotten a lot of my focus, in the, particularly in the last year. And in that, as was the case with my teaching, you know, I taught for 10 years in high schools, various locations in Wisconsin, and it's, it's about literacy. 
when I was teaching in the high schools, obviously we were talking about the literacy of teenagers, but in my activism, as you put it, on the web, my concern is the literacy or lack thereof of adults. I think we need fundamentally better class of citizen in America, and I'm trying to do what little bit I can to foster democratic ideals of civic competence, uh, give people an opportunity to find some worthwhile books as judged by the mainstream book reviewers, media, uh, folks who work in these areas. So you think that if we had more literacy in this country, you think it would make a positive difference in terms of democracy, in terms of how our country runs? Mark, I don't think that democracy is possible without a highly literate citizenry. Once upon a time, when we put the reins of power in the hands of those who had unlimited leisure time to study and learn and season themselves for political service, maybe, maybe it was possible for a citizen rate to be not necessarily all that literate. But when, at least in theory, all of us have our hands on the reins of government, that puts a very heavy responsibility on all of us, and we need to do the best we possibly can to stay apprised of issues that matter. And in a democracy, that's pretty much everything. To a certain degree, we all have to be experts, in a sense. We all need to know a little something, at least, about pretty much everything in a democracy, whether it be science, even engineering to a certain extent, or political theory, international relations. In a democracy, we all need to know at least something about all of those kinds of areas, because we'll be called on to make decisions at the ballot box, at the very least. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is to turn off our TVs for a little while and look at some worthwhile books. And that's what I feature on the 48er, is books that that have been judged to have been worthwhile. You know, for example, today's is a piece called Blind into Baghdad, America's War in Iraq by James Fallows. He was a speechwriter for Jimmy Carter for many years, and he's been writing for the Atlantic Monthly. It's a collection of some of the essays he wrote about the Iraq War in the early stages and published in the Atlantic. There's information that we all need in his magazine articles, in his book, to get a handle on what's going on in Iraq so that we can understand how things have unfolded, what mistakes have been made, and uh, how deep the problems are there. I think we all need to at least be aware of what people like Fallows are saying, which is one thing I try to accomplish with the site, get a broad overview of the book, make it available so that folks can, as I say, at least know what he's saying, and if at all possible, get a hold of a copy of the book and at least read portions of it. I don't think this is optional in a democracy. I think the democracy simply does not work if you don't have large percentages of your citizenry doing exactly these kinds of things. I'm inclined to believe that if the vast majority of a republic's citizenry are spending the overwhelming majority of their leisure time watching television, uh, it ceases to be a democracy. It becomes something else. It becomes an ochlocracy, which, of course, is mob rule. I think that's where we're at today. I think we're mired in the pits of a mob rule in which the vast majority of our citizens have neither a clue nor a care about life on this planet, much less the life of a 21st century democratic republic. You seem to put great stock in print literature Mm -hmm. as opposed to TV or radio. 
obviously this program is going out on radio. Mm -hmm. Why can't we depend on radio or TV? I mean, some of us are just audio-oriented as opposed to visual-oriented. Mm -hmm. Why can't we take in the information, make our decisions that way? We could be reading nothing but romance novels and be no further ahead, even though we read 400 books a year. Right, right. I am in complete agreement with you. As long as we can leave television out of the equation. I'm a huge fan of national public radio, and I think it's an excellent way to get one's news. But it's not as stultifying as television. It's not as passive television tends to demand your full and undivided and makes it virtually impossible to do anything else. Whereas a good radio station, if you're cooking dinner, you can take it in. If you're uh, working on something that doesn't require real tight focus, again, you can listen to an excellent radio show and, and get your news and features and information that way. And I have no quibble with that. However, one thing that radio can't do, that the net can't do, that only books, really only books can do is consistently demand nuanced thinking and sustained thinking. And I think those are two absolute prerequisites for democracy. If you're not able to sustain your thought, hold an idea in your head and turn it over and over and over and see nuances and shadings and spend time with it and walk around with it and live with it, you're really not capable of practicing democracy. So from that perspective, in my mind at any rate, books are the ideal calisthenic for the democratic mind, not only for the information that one can glean from high-quality nonfiction in particular, but also from the habits of mind, as I say, the practice of looking at ideas with nuance and in sustained sorts of ways. You've been active in newspaper work. Mm -hmm. Why couldn't it be newspaper inspiration, newspaper insight, as opposed to depending upon books, per se? I think newspapers are indispensable to democracy, just as surely as books are. You know, Jefferson nailed it. I can't remember the exact words, but I, I think it was something to the effect, given a choice between a democracy and a free press, I'd take the free press every day. I'm sure I just butchered that, but something to that effect. Again, I think newspapers are indispensable to democracy. When I log on to the net in the morning, the first place I go is Google News, New York Times, Washington Post. You know, that's the only way to get that kind of information. However, if you want to go into any kind of depth, again, if you want to engage in any kind of nuanced thought, newspaper just isn't the medium that's going to do that for you. It's a matter of picking the right tool for the job, I guess. As much time as I spend on the Internet, you know, it's just not appropriate and not helpful for some sorts of things. It tends to uh, encourage the same sort of butterfly mind approach to reality that television does as you flip from idea to idea to idea, never really going into great depth, never really holding an idea in your head for any length of time. That's obviously something we need to do as a species. That's That's how we take ideas apart, and if we stop doing that, well, then we're not evolving, we're devolving. Originally, when TV was coming up, people thought that TV could be this great information disseminator, mm -hmm. a great source. And then later it got labeled as the vast wasteland. Mm -hmm. From my point of view, the difference between some of the books that you're talking about and television is that television is seen primarily as entertainment, mm -hmm. relaxation, kicking back. It's put your mind in neutral and let someone else drive. Well, you know, that's true, and there's room in the world for entertainment. Unfortunately, it's how television gets used. 
Yeah, I should say this. I'm not really concerned at this point about the so-called quality or lack thereof. I think we can leave that aside and keep it to a simple matter of arithmetic, a simple matter of counting to 24. There are just so many hours in the day. Most of us have to spend some of that time sleeping, some of that time at work or at school, eating, brushing our teeth, etc., and there are just so many hours left to pursue other things, leisure time, whatever you want to call it. It's something for most of us probably in the neighborhood of about four hours a day. On average, Americans watch over four and a half hours of television a day. So that's my concern. Not so much the idea that television is a vast wasteland. I'm not even going that far. I'm saying let's just look at the simple arithmetic. If you're spending four and a half hours of your day every day, on average, watching television, you simply don't have the time to become a functional citizen. Again, it has nothing to do with quality or lack thereof. It's just simple arithmetic. We need to turn off our TVs once in a while and take our citizenship seriously because the consequences of failing to do so are so spectacularly frightening that I would hope it would be unthinkable for anybody to do otherwise, although apparently such is not the case. So in the meantime, I guess that leaves those of us who do think about such things just to encourage those around us to give some thought to these kinds of principles, to turning off the TV. You know, there are books that we've read that we can recommend to people, websites we can recommend to people. I think we all, those of us who are, what shall I say, civically engaged, I think all of us can probably do better jobs of encouraging and enabling those around us to follow suit. Well, one way you're doing that is by your website, the48er.com, and that's for those who are just listening. It's Mm T-H-E-4-8-E-R.com. That site, you're holding up literature that you think is valuable for people to read Mm -hmm. and give them connections. I'd also mention on that website that you have a nice link to World News Portal. Mm Mm-hmm which is a connection to all kinds of newspapers across the world. In the U.S., we get such a small section of what the news is really about. I experienced myself when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa that my students there, poor rural students, were better educated about world news than the people I knew in the United States. Well, there again, I think you've got to blame television, Mark. I I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but I just can't begin to tell you how evil I think that box has come to be as far as the disservice it does to our republic and the world. What most people in America think of as news is so far from it, it's just a pathetic joke. You know, the network news, the Fox network, CNN, it's just, it's pathetic. You've got 24-7 Jean-Benet Ramsey. Come on now, that's not news. That's sensationalistic, very sad information, but it's uh, it's tawdry. It's not news. It was news when that poor little girl was killed, but the idea that that's what we're being bombarded with instead of factual, well-researched information about what's going on in Iraq or Afghanistan or Indonesia, it's a terrible thing. And all you've got to do since the advent of the net is make a couple clicks to get a different perspective. As a matter of fact, something that, you know, I appreciate your mentioning that world news media in English, because that's that's my page, but there's an even easier way to access that kind of information, and that's Google News. 
anybody who's not checking Google News every once in a while is really missing out because it gives a person an opportunity to, at a glance, see the perspectives of people from all over the world instead of just the standard party line from America, which, of course, is ultra-conservative, corporate-oriented, pro-capitalist, militarist. You know, there are other perspectives in the world. And because we in America, or because our republic wields the kind of power it does, I think it's the responsibility of all of us to have some idea of what people in other places are thinking. And you're not going to get it from the mainstream American media. You're just not. You're going to get sensationalistic garbage. Turn off your TV, check out the uh, Internet, the New York Times, read some good books. Is there more diversity in books? Is there more diversity in print literature? than there is in newspaper or radio or whatever? It depends on where you look. You know, the diversity is there, but you've got to seek it out. I I feature a different book that I judge to be worthwhile every day, and it costs me about 20 hours a month finding those books. There's all kinds of stuff published in the United States and elsewhere. But as far as something that's really of value in some way to an engaged citizen... You're not necessarily going to find the kind of diversity you're talking about simply by walking into a bookstore at your mall. You've got to dig to find that kind of material. For example, yesterday I featured a book by a fellow by the name of Vali Nasser called The Shia Revival, How Conflicts Within Islam Will Shape the Future. And I think it's vitally important information that Mr. Nasser presents because we're talking about the fundamental divisions in the Middle East between Shia and and Sunni. And I think most of us in the West, and I certainly include myself when I say most of us, know virtually nothing about that fundamental divide in that part of the world that's so critically important to our country right now. The book's gotten good reviews. Mr. Nasser is highly respected. He's written this one for a general audience instead of fellow academics, as is usually the case. So we've got a high-quality, important volume here that's going to be read by virtually no one. Because unless you dig for books of this nature, you're not going to find them. And let's face it, most people are not going to buy books of that nature. That's not, you know, when you raise the kind of concerns that I raise about people not reading, there are always going to be those who say, well, you know, we've never read more books than we do right now. Sales are astronomical. What are you talking about? What I'm talking about is this. Take a look at what's selling. It's not books like the Shia Revival that are selling. It's self-help books, genre fiction, romance novels. That's what people are buying overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly. So is there diversity there, diversity available in books? Only if you dig. It's a lot easier to find it on the Internet, that's for sure. But again, you're not going to get the kind of depth that you do from a well-made book. And I think there are objective ways of judging what is a well-made book and what isn't. You know, you can take a look at things such as what are the qualifications of the author. In the case of the book that I cite, the qualifications are superb. They couldn't be better. You can take a look at the prose. Is it clear and easy to understand for the intended audience? And again, very definitely, that's the case. And I try to apply these kind of criteria to every book that I pick for the site. Tell me a little bit about how U.S. compares in literacy to the rest of the world. 
It depends on what sorts of categories you're applying. I complain a lot about the amount of television we watch. Again, not necessarily the so-called quality, but uh, just the simple amount of time. If I'm not mistaken, Japanese viewers watch as much TV as we do. So in some ways, folks in other countries are in very similar positions to those of the United States. Then you can look at high school graduates. You know, people are in many countries are tested throughout their school careers, so we can compare American students to those in other countries. And in a lot of areas, America lags. But I've got to say, Mark, that doesn't really concern me. We often end up comparing American achievement or lack thereof in basic literacy with the achievement or lack thereof of people in other countries. I think it's more important that we look at what we're doing in absolute terms, just in terms of what we know and what we don't know, based on its own merits. Because if we do indeed have an average of roughly four hours of leisure time a day, well, then somebody is going to need to explain to me why we couldn't all be philosophers and engineers. you know. And when we have 13 years of education, minimally, why aren't we capable of functioning as rudimentary citizens? Let me run a couple of numbers by you here. You know, I, I would guess that many of the things I'm saying sound pretty darn negative and not terribly democratic, elitist perhaps. But I'll tell you some of the indisputable facts that make me pretty sure I'm right about some of these things. Seventy percent of us can't name our U.S. senators. You know, these are the people who represent us in the United States Congress. Seventy-one percent can't name their U.S. representative. Eighty-four percent are unlikely to grasp the essential ideas in an ordinary magazine article. And I've seen some information that suggests that it's even higher. Let me say that again. 84% of us are incapable or likely to miss the main ideas in an ordinary magazine article. Aren't those written towards an eighth grade education or something? Hasn't there been some standard like that that's generally adopted within the industry? Well, supposedly. Supposedly. I've seen the articles that people from the Education Testing Service used to generate those kinds of numbers, and let me tell you, they're not complicated. They are not complicated at all. Even worse, the uh, testing service several years ago used a one-page juror information sheet, you know, something you'd be handed if you were um, going on jury duty. I don't remember the specifics, but I think it was something to the effect that uh, peremptory challenges and challenge for cause or something like that, that's basically all you had to take away from this one-page sheet. They determined that 97% of Americans were unlikely to grasp that basic idea. Here's another one that just makes me want to tear my hair out. 83% of us either don't believe in evolution at all or seriously doubt its basic tenets. And, you know, this list goes on and on and on. And, again, critics oftentimes will say, oh, that's not only is that elitist, that's just trivia. Well, baloney. These are not trivial matters. These are extremely important matters that, that go to the core of what we are as a republic and what we can do as a republic. And when you take these sorts of things together, this endless list of just basic things that we can't do, mainly because we don't exercise our minds, we see that the average American is just completely disengaged from the real world beyond his own or her own little sphere or spheres. Beyond that, forget it. I can see it so clear The very first time I'm at a game with my dad And 
I was eight, maybe nine. We all rose to our feet before the ball game could start. We took off our caps. We put our hands to our hearts. It was more than a banner. It was more than a song. I sang because I believed. I sang because I belonged. I sang for all those who dreamed, for all those who dared. Who looked to the heights, and our flag was still there. Passing on cars, I see it passing for war. I see it passing for patriotism. We've all seen that before. I've seen it used as a weapon to brand some as wrong. No one has the right. I'll stand up and fight to say I belong. Cause our flag is still there. For all the saints and the sinners, yes, our flag is still there. For all the losers and winners, for those of us who still dream, for those of us who still dare, for the outcast and forgotten, our flag is still there. From Lawrence to Lexington, from Concord to Kent, in Seattle and Selma, we are born of descent. And on this native ground, blessed by immigrant blood, in that river of freedom, we're all washed in the flood. Because our flag is still there. For all the saints and the sinners, yes, our flag is still there. For all the losers and winners, for those of us who still dream, for those who still dare, for all the lost and forgotten, the flag is still there. Still there, though we might disagree. If you are brave in the land of the free, we have weathered so much, we have traveled so far, we are woven together, we are spangled with stars. Take off our caps and as we all rise, put our hands to our hearts, and as we lift up our eyes, 
We begin with a question We ask them, say, can you see? Stand and be strong Believe and belong Be brave and be free Because our flag is still there For all the saints and the sinners Yes, our flag is still there For all the losers and winners Those of us who still breathe Those of us who still dare For everyone in this country flag is still there That was Our Flag Was Still There by John McCutcheon. You're listening to an interview with Dan Neerhaugen of the website the48er.com, a thoughtful advocate of civil engagement and political literacy. Considering the kind of technological power we now possess and the kind of obscenely high levels of population we've generated, we need to do something about that, or I just don't see that there's any way in the world that human civilization makes it out of this century. I think there's a pretty good reason that Stephen Hawking a couple months ago said that uh, we've got to start looking at populating the moon and Mars because we're not going to make it here. We're doing too many things wrong. If this was just Dan Nerhaugen saying this, maybe there wouldn't be so much cause for concern, but we're talking about Stephen Hawking, one of the brightest guys in the world right now. I think when somebody like Hawking speaks in such terms, it behooves the rest of us to pay attention. Dan, it's kind of interesting to hear these things coming out of your mouth. Essentially, <laughs> you're you're asking people to be better educated. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things about your past is that you dropped out of high school. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us about why you did that, what that meant, and your path since then? Well, there were a lot of reasons. And I don't know if I know all of them myself, but I know one of them. It's that I thought a lot of my time was being wasted. I just had this sense that I wasn't getting the good stuff. You know, that I was spending all this seat time in school, and I wasn't getting the best of the best, the best that's been known and thought in the world, as Matthew Arnold said. So I pulled the plug on it, and to make a long story short, ended up at college a few years later, and boy, it took me about 10 minutes to realize there's nothing wrong with this at all. Because unlike many public high schools, at college, you're talking about a highly educated professoriate who can give you the good stuff. (laughs) A professoriate that does know where the intellectual bones are buried. And then later, when I went back myself to teach, I guess that was always a concern of mine, that I'd be ready to give my students to make the introductions to the best minds, the best literature, the best ideas that I could possibly find so that I not waste their time. Because I think that's one of the greatest sins that we can possibly commit with a public school. Particularly, I guess it's just a bias of mine, I like kids. I like high school kids. 
lot of folks over the years have said, geez, how could you do that? How could you teach teenagers? Didn't it drive you crazy? And I always thought their minds are at least as strong as ours, but unlike ours, they're not closed yet. They're willing to give ideas a fair shake, and it's absolutely our responsibility to provide them the best of the best and not waste their time if they're willing to bring open minds to the classroom, and generally they are, I always found. What did you teach them? How did what you present differ from what you got coming up in high school? Well, to the extent that I could, I tried to teach world literature, not just English literature, but I tried to bring in important, worthwhile work from cultures gone by. For example, Plato was something I taught sophomores, including remedial sophomores, and I found that would not be tried in most high school classes, and yet I found that even my remedial classes could grasp the ideas could make interesting and worthwhile connections, and hopefully they can carry some of that information with them even today, many years later. I hope they do to some extent. You know, I think there's almost nothing, if you're talking about literature or philosophy at least, that you can't do at least on an introductory level with high school kids, and possibly with kids a lot younger. I don't know. I I work with high school kids. That was my thing. But, you know, Mark, the problem was never the students. It was never the teenagers. The problem tended to be the so-called adults. As I say, I taught a lot of world literature, and at one point my curriculum was challenged by the parents of one of my students on the grounds that it was too hard, that it would be better to read teenage novels, that it would be better to use canned worksheets. And I saw this sort of thing again and again and again. The kids come into your classroom, and they're ready to go as long as you don't snow them, as long as you don't waste their time. But when you're forced to deal with the so-called adults, you're going to get another story altogether. Another instance, I'm not going to go too in-depth here because there are probably legal issues involved, but in other instances I found parents doing their, not only doing their children's homework, you know, doing major papers for their sons and daughters, but plagiarizing to do them and doing poor jobs on them. So we got mom and dad doing the papers and getting lousy grades on them for junior. The kids tend not to be the problem. It's about adults. We talk a good game with our kids. Stay in school, study hard. What about us? What are we doing? What are we doing for our own minds? And in too many cases, the answer is not really one that we're too proud to give. Dan, I want to get back to your site, the 48er.com, and your mm-hmm. effort for what I would call political literacy. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose that name, the 48er, <laughs> for those of us who are illiterate? <laughs> well, it has to do with the neck of the woods in which you and I grew up, Mark. One of the most famous 48ers of them all, Carl Schertz, lived a few miles from Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. He lived in Watertown for a time. The 48ers were German intellectuals who provided some of the mind power for the European revolutions of 1848, and they were very progressive revolutions, attempting to throw off centuries of monarchical rule, attempting to stand up for the rights of working people. The revolutions were ultimately unsuccessful. They were crushed by a right-wing backlash, so that many of the leaders of the revolutions of 48 came to the United States, ultimately, as did Karl Schurz, probably the most illustrious of the group. And here in Wisconsin, the traditions of German liberalism were very, very strong in the late 19th century, and to some extent still are today. 
And I think any of us reading the story of some of the 48ers, certainly Carl Schurz, probably discover we just have some natural affinities with him and some of the fine things that he and his colleagues did. Uh, there were some other elements relating to 1848 that made me like that title. The American Women's Movement was essentially born in 1848 with the Seneca Falls Convention, attended by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and other leaders. They published the Declaration of Sentiments, which was sort of like the opening salvo in the efforts for women's rights in America. You knew Lucretia Mott was part of that, didn't you? Ah, yes, of course. Frederick Douglass, too, if I remember correctly, but... Uh, at the women's tea party? I don't think so. It's like four women present, and three of them were Quakers. Oh, no, no, no. I'm talking about the Seneca Falls Convention. I think there were three or 400 people for that one. It was a big one when they drafted the Declaration of Sentiments. Oh, yeah, but it originated from essentially a kind of a little get-together of four women. Oh, I see what you're saying. Three of the four who were Quakers, and they came up with this project, and within a few months they pulled it off. Well, it shouldn't surprise anyone that that was the case, particularly at that point in our nation's history. Many of the great moral leaders, not in only the women's movement, but also in the abolition movement, were Quakers. And that record, I think, speaks for itself. But there are other elements, 1848 elements, that make me think that the 48er is a nice thing to call this. Uh, Communist Manifesto was written in 1848, published at least in 1848. I'm certainly no apologist for what the Soviet Union did, so I should make that clear off the bat. On the other hand, I think anybody who can read the Communist Manifesto, Marx's Communist Manifesto, and not sympathize with a great deal of what he's saying isn't paying any attention. The form of global capitalism we know today is often called neoliberal capitalism. You know, I see very little different from that, Mark, from the laissez-faire capitalism that Marx was attacking. The exploitation is just horrible. What it's doing to the environment is horrible. So anyway, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Communist Manifesto. Oh, oh, oh. 
song was the Internationale by the Sheffield Socialist Choir. You're listening to an interview with Dan Neerhaugen, whose website, the48er.com, provides tools for civic engagement and political literacy. Henry David Thoreau gave a speech in 1848 that would eventually be known to the world as civil disobedience. That's an important one to me also. So for lots of reasons, the 48ers seem like a reasonable thing to call it as any. And I guess the thing I like best is that it's considerably shorter to say the 48er.com than it is to say citizens should read worthwhilebooks.com. It's easier to enter in the address bar, you know, the address window. Talk a little bit about your history. What were you raised religiously? Mm-hmm. Where has your path taken you? And what kind of beliefs do you have? Or what kind of religious, spiritual beliefs do you still hold today? Well, I was born into a somewhat observant Catholic family went to parochial school in first and second grade, and after that I was a regular at CCD and CYO and all that good stuff until probably about the age of 14, at which time I started to started to drift away. I looked at evangelical Christianity briefly at about that time and, and drifted and drifted, and then, as I mentioned earlier, ended up at the university and discovered philosophy, and to me that just addressed a real hunger I had. If not Catholicism, then what? ended up taking a look at a lot of existentialist philosophers at college, some ancient Greeks. I was a big fan of Plato. Got a kick out of Nietzsche. Took a look at a lot of Eastern religions. I found many aspects, well, still do find many aspects of Buddhism, particularly Zen Buddhism, very congenial. When, when I'm not overworking myself, I like to sit Zen as often as possible. When I am overworking myself, I guess, is when I need it most and when I do it least. So I guess that would be, if you're asking what are my spiritual inclinations, one would be toward sitting Zen, although many would argue that that's not spiritual per se, that that's more physiological. As far as what churches I attend, generally Unitarian Universalist to the extent that I attend it all. But I guess if I had to nail myself down as far as spiritual beliefs, I'd have to say I'm a Cubs fan. The Chicago Cubs are the greatest metaphor for life that's ever been created. In the real world, none of us are going to be the world champions. We're going to have a lot of tough days, but we're going to have our moments, just like the Cubbies. (laughs) That's deep. That's deep. Really deep. I was going to revisit also a little bit about your history in publishing Mm -hmm. with different newspapers. Mm -hmm. Talk about that and a little bit about that book that you published. 
Well, it started as kind of a lark, to tell you the truth. I got in touch with a local newspaper, uh, oh, about 10 years ago. This is when I was living in Stoughton, just to see if they needed any help. I had written for a college newspaper and written this, written that, and I said, well, maybe someday. So for whatever reason, someday arrived about 10 years ago, and the paper I contacted said, sure, we need somebody to cover the school board meeting. <laughs> I thought that sounded droll. You know, as a recovering teacher, the idea of sitting in judgment of a school board sort of appealed to me. I thought, why not? To make a long story short, within a couple months, I was editing that paper and its sister newspaper in the Madison area and found out very quickly what kind of hours are involved at the lower rungs of journalism, which is to say the vast majority of all rungs of journalism. I'm editing a couple of small-town newspapers. I, I found myself working 80, 100 hours a week. Work days would often exceed 24 hours. So, and, and, you know, I've known a lot of editors over the years. It wasn't just my circumstances. That's just the way it can be in that line of work. It can be wicked. So I did that for a couple of years and then tried to get away from it because the hours were just literally killing me. Went into a lot more freelance pursuits, dealing particularly with history, which has always been a, a big interest of mine, and I've been producing local history newspaper columns since 1998. I think I've produced something in the neighborhood of 5,000 or more of them. The book I wrote was just a little local history of Stoughton, Wisconsin, where I lived at that time. That was published, I believe, in 2000. But since then, by far and away, the bulk of what I've published has been the history columns. Just as a matter of fact, I was up this morning wrapping up uh, wrapping up a few of those for a number of newspapers, dealing a lot with immigration issues in the old days, finding that America didn't like immigrants 100 years ago either, <laughs> any more than, than the conservatives seem to like immigrants from south of the border today. Uh, some of our forebears were getting the raw end of the deal 100 years ago. I found it interesting to see that the same kind of comments directed at Hungarian immigrants a century ago as are often directed at Mexican immigrants now. Some of the comments that we heard then and that we hear now are equally specious in their reasoning and equally vicious in their basic motivation. Funny how things don't really change on some fronts. Are these historical articles that you do for the newspaper, are they things like 10 years ago on this date or that kind of thing? It's similar, but I try very hard to make them different. I don't like the kind of feature you're talking about because they tend to be really superficial and they tend not to get at what was really going on. I don't do the 10 years ago, 25, 50, 100. I stick strictly to 100 years ago and I try to write each column with some substance to it. For example... A little more than 100 years ago, the United States was involved in a conflict that came out of the Spanish-American War called the Philippine-American War. It was a major, major conflict, particularly for the Filipinos, who lost between a quarter million and a million civilians as the United States, under Teddy Roosevelt and others, essentially colonized the Philippines. We, in those days, uh, under Roosevelt, were, as a country, literally interested in becoming an American empire. It was openly stated. So what I'm looking for is instances in the newspapers where, say, the Philippine-American War is mentioned, and it gives me an opportunity to say, okay, well, this was what was going on in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin, a hundred years ago, as far as people reading about the Philippine-American War. Here's what it was. Here's what this means. Here's what actually took place. 
So I, I try to set what I'm doing in a broader context in the process as often as possible, you know, to try and address some of these issues, in many cases social problems that we're dealing with now and that we were dealing with a hundred years ago too. I think these are, again, the sorts of things that ordinary citizens need to know about, not to be experts, at least to know about, in order to make rational judgments now. I sneak as much of that in there as I possibly can, but, you know, as far as the 10 years ago, 25, 50, we tend to trivialize not only our history, but so much that matters, and that sort of brings me back to books. We can't trivialize these issues if we expect to deal with them as citizens. We need to think a lot more seriously about them than 10 years ago, 25, 50. Let me try and find out from you what your motivations are on the bigger picture. You're mm-hmm. very concerned for literacy, for mm-hmm. maybe what you call political literacy. What, what Civic you... engagement, responsible citizenship. You're very concerned about civic engagement mm-hmm. and responsible citizenship. Mm-hmm. Why? Why does it really matter? Why couldn't you just be Hitler at the top and get rid of all the people who <laughs> don't agree with you? <laughs> well, if I get the position, you know, maybe we can talk. You know, if I'm the one being hired for that particular job, maybe there's reason to uh, pursue it. But my question really is, why? What's the overall picture, the way that the world would fit together best, and I'm, maybe I'm asking about your religious, or maybe I'm asking about your philosophical values, beliefs, the thing that says, here's why this is a good direction, and that's a bad direction. Yeah, well, I, I tend to be very conservative in that respect. I believe in the idea of a meritocracy, but that's not going to happen. You know, that's something that the founders talked about. They wouldn't have used that word, of course, but that's sort of the wavelength they were on, but not the wavelength we're on. America has become much, much more populist since the time of the founders. And in some ways, it's been a good thing, and in some ways, it's been a horrible thing. The idea that everybody gets the vote, everybody is represented, obviously, in some respects, is a positive thing. Everybody should have a say over what kind of world he or she is going to live in and what sorts of rules he or she is going to play by. On the other hand, we tend to make a fetish of democracy and a fetish of the people will decide. What if the people are a bunch of willfully ignorant boobs who haven't a clue and haven't a care? Well, then we've got a problem. That's mob rule. That's ochlocracy. And that's what we've got. No way in the world is the United States a democracy in the sense that most people think of for the simple reason that the vast majority of our citizens are utterly incapable of exercising responsible civic judgment because they haven't done their homework. America's been cheating on its homework since day one. There are numbers available on that, too. Something like 80% of top high school seniors admit to cheating. 70% of college students admit to cheating. It's something I saw in the classroom all the time. You know, we cheated when we were in school, and now that we're adults, it goes beyond cheating. We're not even doing our homework. The only way that our republic is going to survive is anything worthy of the name is if people start turning off their TVs and do something about attending to civic things, attending to their own minds, you know, doing their homework, doing the homework that's necessary to vote responsibly and to engage in other kinds of political activities responsibly. And we're not even in that ballpark now. In my mind, Mark, this is really the only problem. It's the only problem. Everything else stems from it. Electing a fool like George Bush is 100% a result of that. 
rubber stamping a war in Iraq, 100% a result of that. The fact that we're doing nothing about global warming, 100% a result of the fact that the vast majority of Americans have neither a clue nor a care. 40% of the people in this republic, if the polls are to be believed, don't accept the idea that global warming is happening, or at the very least have doubts about it. If we don't change these sorts of things, we're not going to make it. And, you know, it may not be you and I who die horrible deaths. It'll be our children and grandchildren if we don't make some drastic changes and make them now. And the only way those kinds of changes are going to happen is if we turn off our TVs and start doing our civic homework. I guess maybe one of the questions I have behind the scenes is, why should we do this? If we're the richest people in the world, I can live comfortably and have all kinds of earthly delights without making much effort. And I can even watch four hours of television a day and not have to struggle through this. Why should I make the extra effort? What's the deep value that I guess you're advocating for? Well, to tell you the truth, I don't know if I'm advocating for anything all that deep. As far as I can see, Mark, what I'm advocating for at this point is just simple survival. So many of the people who study climatology suggest to us we've got a 10-year window in which to make some major changes or the inevitable ecosystem and biological result of global warming is going to take hold and we're going to be looking at some very, very serious consequences. And we'll see just how paper thin the veneer of civilization is. Global warming, in addition to the fact that it can melt the glaciers, raise the oceans, it's also going to change the microbial world dramatically. It already is changing the microbial world, you know, and this is one of the reasons we end up looking at new diseases because of disruptions caused by fundamental climatological change such as the world hasn't seen in 50 million years. Maybe we're not going to get hit by avian flu, but we're going to see more and more concerns of that nature, and sooner or later we're going to be hit with concerns of that nature, things that can bring the social structure crashing down. I don't really want to be a devil's advocate, but let me just ask you this follow-up question mm -hmm. see if it makes clear what values I'm trying to aim at. Mm -hmm. Would it be so bad if three-quarters of the population of the Earth were destroyed by all the disasters you're talking about? You know, I think uh, attrition would probably be a much nicer way of accomplishing that. You know, we can go through our own volition, through our own planning, through our own wisdom, or we can go kicking and screaming. Either we can address problems that we're creating environmentally, either we can address our own grotesque overpopulation, or mom, as in big mom, is going to take care of it for us. And I don't think we're going to like some of her methods because she can be pretty tough sometimes. Do we need to reduce the population? Yeah. I would not be in favor of reducing it in those kinds of ways, though, because that brings with it all kinds of consequences that nobody's going to like, even for those of us who survive. You know, if we're talking about those kinds of disruptions, we're looking at widespread starvation, we're looking at a lot more violence, a lot more chaos. Uh, the, the Malthusian issues, right? The disease, the starvation, the war, those are the population controls. Right, right. One way or the other, there's a lot of things that we're not able to imagine. These are worse than some of the apocalyptic movies we've seen. And again, the, the thing that bothers me is not so much that we'll face those things. We might. If we don't do something about some of our bad habits, to a certain extent we'll deserve them. But what's really foul about failing to address these issues now is the ones who are condemned really to the worst of the consequences are now children or children unborn. And that's unacceptable.
Dan, tell me about your projects for the future. I think you're doing a revamp of the 48er.com. Yeah, been at it for a year now, and it, uh, you know, I, I'm happy with some of the things I've accomplished, but it's still pretty much a blog. It's time to do a major redesign on that and take it in some more commercially viable directions. But ultimately, what I'd like to do is clear enough time to finish a book that I've been toying with really since I got out of teaching a dozen years ago. And here's a shocker. It deals with adult literacy <laughs> and why we all need to become uh, better citizens than we are now. I, well, I would also like to deal with some of the history of how we've ended up where we are. You know, it's worth saying that this hasn't always been the case. Earlier in the 20th century, there was a flourishing middle-brow culture in America, somewhere between the working person who didn't have the luxury of education and the college prof was the working person who did everything he or she could to improve him or herself, you know, by reading the newspaper, by belonging to a book of the month club, whatever. Self-improvement in that way was a major facet of Americana in the early 20th century. Boy, I say three cheers for middle-brow culture. I mean, people disparaged that in the day. And I think they did us a horrible disservice in doing so because in the place of lowbrow, highbrow, and middlebrow, now we've got only the two poles, highbrow and lowbrow, and the chasm between the two is enormous. And that's too bad. So, yeah, there's a book that I've been toying with for years now, basically dealing with middlebrow culture and citizenship. And someday I'm going to scare up the time to write it. Well, if people want to keep in touch with what Dan Yerhogan is doing in the world and your upcoming books, how would they do that? Well, the easiest way, Mark, would just be have a look at the 48er.com. It's got links. Anybody like to get in touch with me, I'm easy to find that way. But more than anything else, it's got some books that are worth a look. And I hope your listeners will have a look and find some worthwhile reading. Thanks for taking the time for the interview, and thanks for keeping up, raising my literate level. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Dan Neerhaugen, the webmaster for the48er.com and strong advocate of civil engagement and political literacy. You can hear this program again via my website, northernspiritradio.org, where you can see additional information on this program and find helpful links. Music featured on this program has included Our Flag Was Still There by John McCutcheon and The Internationale by the Sheffield Socialist Choir. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher cause for you than this To love and serve your neighbor Enjoy in selflessness To love and serve your neighbor Enjoy in selflessness